If you will, please open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the first six verses of 1 John. <clears throat> As a writer of Proverbs so aptly says in Proverbs 25, verse 11, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. It is a blessing to be loved by someone so much that they are willing to tell you what you need to hear. Those that will encourage you and speak the right words at the right time. And surely you know a person like this. Most people that are like this don't even realize that they are this person. The recipients of this letter that John wrote, the first epistle of, of John, likely felt this way about the Apostle John. He certainly held a great deal of care and affection towards these believers, who he often referred to as my little children. John had a great care for these believers and for us. And John writes his book mostly as an encouragement to these believers. As in his gospel, he makes statements throughout the book telling you exactly what his intent is. He's, he's pretty plain with what he means. This is why I'm writing these things to you. And he says it over and over again. In just five, five chapters, we hear that refrain. And this is the reason why. In chapter 1, he says, we are writing these things that our joy may be complete. And in chapter 2, he says, I'm writing these things that you may not sin. Even in chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, he says it over and over again. I write to you, I write to you, I write to you. This is a man who has a message that he needs to say. A message to proclaim. He was aware of what was going on. We can, we can pick up from the context of 1 John that there were false teachings that we were dealing with. You, we could pick up that, um, there were believers who had claimed to know Christ and these people are no longer walking with Christ and he's concerned with, with the people he's writing to that they may look at those things and understand them rightly. Though all these things were present, there's a, a, there's a candidness about what is going on. He just writes as a loving father to his spiritual children, seeking to tell them what it is to follow after Christ. All the while, while speaking the right words at the right time. The words that they needed to hear. So as we look to the text, we'll look at three main ideas. First, Christ our advocate. Second, Christ our atonement. And third, Christ our guide. Before we go to the text, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank You so much for the opportunity to be before You intentionally, before Your Word. But we pray that the power of Your Word would be present. That Your Holy Spirit would make the words effective. And we know that You will. Lord, help us to look at a text that is, that is so rich. Help us to think about what these things mean. And Lord, help us all to follow You. And help us to refrain from sin. Thank you so much for your grace. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. If you would stand in the honor of the reading of God's Word. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. 
My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His Word, in Him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. You may be seated. John begins chapter 2 by once again telling us forthright one of the reasons he is so desperate to write to us. That being that we would not sin. What worse thing is there than sin? It is sin, our sin, that separates us from God. It is sin that brings death, destruction, and loss. It is sin for which Jesus had to die. For the believer, sin brings shame and it grieves the Holy Spirit. And John hopes that his words would dissuade those whom he loves from sinning. It is with this in mind that I ask you, do you despise sinning? I ask that genuinely. Do you view sinning as something that just happens that you should feel bad for? At what length do you go to avoid sinning against your holy God? I ask this because so often we test how close we can get to that sin line rather than running from it. We play around with the fire of sin and act surprised when we get burned. And Christian, have you considered the idea of not sinning? You may find this line of questioning a little pointed and maybe it might appear a little imbalanced. We are so often concerned with the struggle of sin our struggle with sin. And we view it as something that is passive that we rarely, if at all, consider this idea that we should not sin. John writes at least part of this epistle with the express goal that these people, us, the by extension, would not sin. And though he has this desire, that does not mean that we we do not or will not continue to sin after we come to know Christ. That's obvious by the fact that he continues to speak about Christ, the Advocate. Though he has this desire, he does not stop there. No, we shouldn't sin. He continues, but if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. John knows that as long as we are on this side of glorification, we will have a struggle with sin. Far from excusing our sin, he points to the reality that if we do sin, when we do sin, we have one who stands before God the Father on our behalf, Jesus our righteous advocate. The term advocate brings to mind a judicial type of scene where you have the accused party 
who sits before a righteous judge. The judge requires perfection. The standards that he upholds, the law he upholds is perfect righteousness. The charges are laid out, the accused party is guilty, and the sentence is death. Yet there is an advocate who stands before the righteous judge and does not plead for the righteousness of the accused party. He pleads his own righteousness for the accused in exchange for their guilt. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21 said, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin that we may become the righteousness of God. The theologians and pastors have coined this transaction the great exchange. It was necessary that Jesus be righteous otherwise. Not even He would have been able to stand before that righteous judge. Yet Jesus took our filthy rags and exchanged them for His righteous robe. And He continues to be our helper, our intercessor, our advocate. So though John says this statement that seems pointed and hard, I write these things that you may not sin. He doesn't view that as something that is a complete non-reality for a Christian. But he understands that we do have the, the remnants of the nature that is still there. But that view of sinning that he has helps us avoid taking advantage of the sacrifice of Christ. Our very hope in this life as Christians is based upon the fact that there is an advocate who stands on our behalf. And that brings us to point number two. Christ our atonement. Jesus accomplished our redemption by becoming the propitiation for our sins. The term propitiation is one that has a very specific meaning. And to many people here, to myself included, can be difficult to understand. We don't use the term propitiation every day. One pastor has defined propitiation, I think rightly, as a wrath-satisfying sacrifice. Propitiation is a wrath-satisfying sacrifice. You may wonder... What is the big deal? He says in verse 2, He is the propitiation for our sins. What is the need for propitiation? Why is Jesus standing in this place as a wrath-satisfying sacrifice? Propitiation is necessary because God requires perfection. In Matthew 5.48, Jesus tells His disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Again, you may think, could He not have just forgiven our sins and wiped the slate clean? He knows. What does everybody in this room know? No one is what? Perfect. So what about this requirement? He knows that we can't attain it. He knows we can't attain it. So why not just wipe the slate clean? I say to you that since God is righteous, He cannot overlook or wipe away sin. 
It was because of His righteousness and, and His inherent perfection that He sent His Son to become a propitiation, a wrath-satisfying sacrifice for our sins. He accomplished that upon His own because He loved us first. Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Paul does an, gives us an amazing passage of Scripture with such clarity around this idea of God providing a sacrifice on our behalf. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a wrath-satisfying sacrifice, a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He may be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what it becomes of our boasting, it is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. By a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Jesus came to be a propitiation. It was necessary that He come to be a propitiation because God does not overlook sin. If you are in Christ, understand something. Jesus did not forgive your sins. He paid for them. Past, present, and future. Jesus continues at this moment to stand in your stead if you're in Christ. As your advocate, He fulfills the righteous requirement of perfection by standing in your place. And He bore the wrath of God. It is because of His work satisfying the wrath of God and as our advocate that we have, can have hope that we will be with Him and that we can stand before Him. As my, one of my favorite hymns says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. We can cling to the cross understanding that Jesus has satisfied what was required of us. He became a propitiation for our sin. There is very seldom, there's few messages in this world more powerful than that. I don't think there is one. Jesus died for sin. And we have forgiveness because He paid for it. John continues by talking about the application of this propitiation, the application of Christ's atonement. He says that this propitiation applies not only to his sin and to those to whom he's writing, but to anyone who has faith in Christ in the whole world. 
This propitiation was not only for an ethnic group of people, ethnic Israel, but to everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord everywhere. Some have insisted that this passage teaches that when John says the whole world, that he means that the sins of every individual who has ever existed has been paid for by Jesus' propitiation. If this were the case, then we would have to accept that every person, that every person would be saved. There is no sin that needs to be paid for any longer. There's nothing required upon of them. Whether they had faith or not, whether they were Christians or not, if this propitiation applies to everyone, what sin is there to punish? There is no sin. Jesus was the wrath satisfying sacrifice for sins. It is impossible that that be, that that be the case. And this is why that we, this is why we have a necessity within us to share the gospel to those who don't know it. This is why we have evangelism training. This is why we proclaim Christ. Because people need Jesus. This can also be demonstrated by a scenario that's likely familiar to all of us. All of us, most of us have grown up in in the South. Some of us have been engrafted in to the South here recently, which is great. It's a good place to be. How many of you have ever been the experienced person, inexperienced person who's backing a trailer in a tight spot with a whole bunch of people watching you and waiting for you so that as soon as you move, they can get by? Anybody ever been in that situation? The intensity of the stress increases with each passing moment, with each turn of the wheel, with each reverse and pull forward. When you finally make it out of the gauntlet of trailer backing distress and describe your predicament, you can't not help but feel and say, the whole world was watching and waiting on me to get that thing backed in. And if we're honest, there was only like five people who were there. John here is describing not the extent of the atonement or propitiation for every individual, but the application of Jesus' sacrifice that knows no cultural bounds but applies to all types of people all over the world. He was a propitiation for our sins and for that of all types of people. And praise God for that. Speaking as a Gentile. As we continue, we look at verse 3 again. Let's read that together. We'll be looking at point number three, Christ our guide. And by this we know that we have come to know Him. Here's your litmus test. If we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His Word in Him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. John creating a bookend around an amazing thing such as propitiation. Expounding the work of Christ and delivering us from our past, present, and future sins with looking at the example of Christ as our Savior Paying for that, our atonement. In verses three through six, John wants us to know that in light of the amazing works of Jesus, that we should not use that as an application or an occasion or a license to sin. He ends this portion of scripture describing what someone who truly knows Christ looks like. Those who have come to know Christ keep 
His commandments. He's essentially echoing the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Beware of false prophets. This is Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree that bears good fruit, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. John here in verses 3 through 6 points out what he learned from Jesus. That if we truly know him, that we will bear good fruit. That is not to say that we will never sin again. Understand that. There's multiple things. There's qualifications that John has over and over again in his book. And we could spend all day going about those qualifications that he has. But he's never light on sin. Ever. He's never light on the requirement that you ought to look like Jesus if you claim Him. Ever. Let's look again at another passage of Scripture. Turn to John chapter 15. John recorded this in his Gospel. And you can see the echoes here in chapter 2 of what he says in John 15. John 15, starting in verse 1. Jesus is teaching. He said, I am the vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he is it that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch. And withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The result of our salvation, the result of the work of Christ as an advocate on our behalf and His propitiating work in our lives will lead to a life that is different. Where through the power of the Holy Spirit we are able to seek to abide in Christ and to walk after Him. If we seek to walk after Christ, we will seek not to sin. And we will find rest in the fact that Jesus has accomplished our salvation. The work of Christ in saving us from our sins should lead us to live lives of holiness in which we walk in obedience, not to earn righteousness or to keep it, for that is impossible, but to abide in Him. And in doing so, 
so prove that we have truly been born again. John is extremely concerned about the truthfulness of our confession. If you turn for just a moment uh, to verse 18 of chapter 2, he begins to speak about some things that were unfortunate realities that are still realities for us. He says, children, again, addressing these people with endearment. He views them as a child, as his spiritual children. Children, it is the last hour. As you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be become plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One and you have knowledge. I write these things not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lies are the truth. There were those in their midst who had been with them, they went out from them, but they did not continue with them. They proved themselves to be false. How did they prove themselves to be false? Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says they abide will walk in the same way in which he walked. Look at your life. Does your life match your confession? Do you claim Christ and yet despise and consider burdensome His his commandments? If so, turn from this error. Seek the Advocate and walk after the only One who can save you. Maybe you are here today, you don't know Christ. Maybe you've never known what it is to have true faith in Christ. You may confess Jesus with your mouth, but internally your heart is far from Him. Maybe you never really knew Him. I don't say these things to make you doubt your position before Christ. Understand this, that it is only Christ that is the one who keeps us from falling away. It is only Christ who saves us. It is a gift of God that we are justified, that we're made right before a holy God. We, though we sin, have no condemnation in Christ. All of those things are true of us, but we must have a real frank discussion with ourselves about what we are doing and how we live. And John is very concerned with that. If you struggle with assurance, read 1 John. Because if you come out the other side saying, yes, I'm a sinner, but Christ is my Savior. He's my advocate. I want to follow Him. That doesn't require you to be perfect. That just requires a perfect Savior. If you walk away from that and you go, but Jesus is my only hope. I can't do these things. I do sin, but I struggle. That's not what He's talking about here. He's talking about those who confess but aren't really there. Maybe you're here today and you don't know that Jesus died for your sins. I'm here to... Hopefully, He did. I hope you've trusted Him and cling to Him and run to Him because He's your only hope. Because that courtroom scene that I described, that's coming for every person. 
And we're all guilty. And the Advocate doesn't excuse your sin. He paid it for it. Have you ever had faith in Christ? The Reformers recognized the threefold nature to biblical faith. I love how it's been so often defined. They describe these three aspects of faith as like a three-legged stool. Faith is accompanied by knowledge, belief, and trust. And can you say you have truly trusted in Christ? The devil knows God. The devil obviously is a real it's a reality to him that God exists. He therefore he believes. Have you trusted in him as Lord? Have you trusted in Christ? And if you haven't, call on him, the only advocate that is available and the only one you need, the righteous Savior Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank You so much for today, for Your loving kindness towards us and providing a sacrifice for Your people. What You did really accomplished something. It wasn't just a show. You paid for the sins of Your people. You paid for my sin. Lord, I pray that every person here, that myself, would look at our lives and say, how must we live? How can we walk after the Savior? Not to earn ourselves a place, but out of love, seeking to abide in the vine. Lord Jesus, be with our worship this day. Be with us this week as we seek to follow You. Pray all this in Christ. Amen.